what it is, what's up? I have some amazing news for all the Faces and Feels listeners out there. That's right. WrestleBrainia is hitting Perth for the first time this fringe season. Three shows only, February 3rd, 4th, and 5th. The Dutch Trading Co., Sound Brewing Co., Seasonal Brewing Co., and the Face and Feels podcast will be in the house, in the zebra stripes, to help control all of the action, all while downing a couple of frosty beers. There's going to be amazing pro wrestlers, hilarious comedians. It's a comedy show like no other. It's spicks and specs with power slams and suplexes. Get your tickets now, because WrestleBrainia is going to be running wild, brother. What's up and welcome everyone to Faces and Feels. I am your host, Rafe Houston, and today I am joined by a very special guest. This is a bucket list guest for me. It is the Australian hardcore deathmatch legend, the man known as Mad Dog. How are you today, sir? Yeah, good, thanks. And uh, yeah, just thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much, buddy. I um, Like I said, I haven't heard you kicking around on many of these things. I, it was an absolute pleasure to meet you in real life. Uh, when I was over in Melbourne, and it's so cool to talk to you now and kind of hear a bit of your journey. Yeah, like I said, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, good to do it. But uh, just uh, being a dinosaur, I avoid most of these things, not, not necessarily on purpose, but just with no um, social media and very, even like very limited mobile phone uses. Yeah, it's a bit awkward to do podcasts and no one can possibly contact you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but congrats, we've made it happen. So good. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely stoked about it, to tell you the truth. And, like, it, it was really interesting when I, I met you and you were telling me about that, and we'll probably touch on that before we rewind all the way down. So you've only just got a, a mobile phone even somewhat recently. Like, you were for ages just getting around on a pay phones and stuff, right? Pretty much, essentially, yeah. I was, like, the least contactable person ever. But sort of, sort of by design, it wasn't, like, an accident or anything. I've had... Um, phones back in the day on and off but there were long periods of time where i not only didn't have social media i literally didn't have a phone at all for i would say close to three years would probably have been one of the longest stretches that's absolutely amazing and to be honest i don't hate it like uh my my phone (laughs) takes up probably too much of my life and and is a huge part and though social media has given me a lot there's a certain relaxation and freedom when you come home and you put it away, my my current mobile phone is not charging well. Like the can, the cable doesn't connect; it will only charge on this dumb pad. Yeah, so, I've had those issues. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so my routine at the moment, because I've just only got one of the pad and it lives by my bed, is when I get home from work, I take it in the room. You know, it can't even last the day basically, and I throw it on yep. the pad, and then I don't look at it till after dinner and everything like that. And it's actually been pretty freeing, to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah, it's to, fantastic. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, I'm uncontactable for a couple of hours. I don't look at any messages. Nobody dies. Everything's totally fine. And I can just like relax with my wife and my dog. I had to have those awkward conversations with family and friends where they're like, I just don't understand. What happens if like, we really need you to come over and help, like move some stuff for us? Yeah, that's that's terrible. I'm missing out on all of this. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how I've gone with it. <laughs> 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 
my work saying, oh, it would have been really nice for you to, you know, like come in on a Saturday and work like a nine-hour shift just extra. But we couldn't get hold of you. Yeah, that's terrible. What a fucking shame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at some point I got conned into it by family and friends. It's just too much. You you can't be of your age and not being contactable. uh, Fair enough, you won. Yeah, you've got to be responsible. Doesn't mean you need to answer every call, though. You can screen (laughs) them. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, but let's rewind all the way back to the start. So you've obviously got a a uh, career spanning quite a few years here and it dates all the way back. So, but before even that, let's rewind back to the first sort of faces that you ever saw in wrestling and that dragged you in, that caught your attention and made you fall in love with it. How were you first exposed to wrestling? Yeah, I've got uh, two older brothers, so I really don't actually remember starting watching wrestling. I would have been showing wrestling since I was, you know, literally a baby yeah so the earliest memories i have of it i would say that's five or six years old watching hulk hogan and andre the giant those sort of really early wwf stuff probably nothing earlier than wrestlemania when i was a kid just because that stuff so was so difficult to find in australia but i remember being really really young and having like brothers and stuff back in the days of vhs's going to video rental stores and hiring five weekly videos for a week and all of them being WWF pay-per-view, so I had, you know, from a kid, I would have watched those tapes non-stop every time there was a new tape in, me and my brothers would have that, we'd watch it, we probably would have watched, you know, WrestleMania 1 to 4, 50 million times, we'd hired those things out, as well as all the rumbles and all that sort of stuff. When I was a kid, there was no pay TV or anything like that, Yeah. so it wasn't like you could watch any sort of, like, televised wrestling, mm-hmm. and it was sort of in that phase where Aussie wrestling had completely died off, so the only wrestling I was exposed to was Pretty much really early WWF stuff. And then I think when I was like early teens or even maybe a little bit younger than that, like maybe 11 and 12, we started having access to WCW through, I believe it was Galaxy at the time, before Foxtel, <laughs> yeah. before any event. It was one of the really early uh, pay TV subscriptions in Australia. One of my brothers got that when I was a kid, so I was able to see that. But early on would have been for sure Hogan, Savage, uh, Jake the Snake, those sort of really early WrestleMania WWF guys. Which, looking back, they were pretty awesome. So, yeah. not, not too bad a thing to watch, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, they still hold up today, like a lot of that stuff, you know, because they, they were the guys, you know, getting out there and doing it first and sort of setting, I, I guess, the, the footprints for people to follow later on down the line, you know? Yeah, and I think just um, to get back and watch those old matches and even the ones that don't have, you know, often off the high spots or whatever like that, but just the atmosphere... And the feeling of the, the matches they had back then, they really felt like a huge sport, a really yeah. big event. And I don't think that's just because I was a kid when I was watching it, but the, the enormous stadiums they were running back then mm-hmm. with, with just, you know, I mean, Hogan and Andre was just a ridiculous draw. Mm-hmm. It's even hard as an adult not to watch that and go, oh, wow, that's like a big thing. You know, it feels like a really big sporting type of event, which is a, yeah. a hard thing to get. Absolutely. Like my first, I, I got into it the same way. I didn't have older brothers or anything, but... Uh through various means had sort of been exposed to it and then would also rent the VHS tapes, you know, from local Video Easy, Blockbuster, whatever it was. And the first one I ever rented myself was WrestleMania 9, which is, you know, the big outdoor one in the Caesars Coliseum. And and even now, any sort of outdoor wrestling and stuff like that has always got a special place in my heart. And it's always the big shows are the ones that, you know, you look forward to the most. Like we just uh, had Wrestle Kingdom, 17 happened for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and I just love the the huge spectacle wrestling. That's when it's, like, absolutely at its best. 
yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the end goal of it all, right? Isn't it to just get that really big feeling of like a big fight, a big sport feel? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's that's the ultimate thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like like a spectacle and going along. I um, we're going. I know you have been to Japan many times. I've been fortunate yeah. enough to be five times. We're going back in April for our sixth time and just booked uh, tickets to go to Sakura Genesis in the Raigoku Sumo Arena. Um, and so yeah. that that's going to be really special. I feel like that's going to have that big fight feel for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been to Sumo like, just a couple of times and it looked, looked pretty cool. Went oh. to the Budokan Arena yeah. uh, in, in Tokyo for Abdul the Butcher's retirement. So oh, that was kind of cool wow. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah, I've been really, really, really lucky with... Um, just being in Japan at odd times and um, just wandering into random shows. I went to Wrestle Kingdom accidentally at least three times. Like, <laughs> like, we were just like wandering around and one wrestler was like, oh, yeah, Wrestle Kingdom's on. I'm like, what? Really? Oh, yeah, I know Wrestle Kingdom. Oh, do you want some tickets? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'll go and see that. <laughs> just I've seen, uh, pretty sure. I don't, I'm probably going to get it wrong. I've seen Brock Lesnar and someone there wow. ages ago in like, it was the main event. It might have been Brock Lesnar and Tanahashi, but it was Brock Lesnar and someone. Wow. Uh, that would have been in like 2000 and six, seven or eight or something like yeah. that uh-huh. um, when their business was quite, like it was quite down and wasn't yeah. a huge crowd. And yeah. then we were there probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years later I was there and seeing Loki doing the Hitman gimmick in the suit yeah. in like a three-way. I can't remember. Yeah, with um, that was- Prince Devitt and Kota Ibushi. I know the exact match you're talking about. That's crazy, that yeah. match. Yeah, and that, I mean, you could see from that time I went where it was Lesnar and, and whoever he fought to that uh Wrestle Kingdom, the big gap between it, you can see how much their business has gone up. Like yeah. The crowd has tripled in size, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Yeah, and the same with... <clears throat> I was wandering around in Tokyo one day. I think I had uh, I had a match in, like, Corrigan Hall somewhere. We were just wandering around during the day, and there was a show, and I'm like, oh, it was random when we walked into this show. And it was like the show had, like, a legend show, and it ended up having Vader on the show, so I got to see him live. Oh. Had uh, Ricky Choshu on it. Another time I went there and managed to see Terry Funk live uh, in a six-man just for like a small indie show. There was you know, maybe like two, 3,000 people there with just yeah. incredible atmosphere for it. Yeah, lucky, man. Just, just wandering around in Japan. It's a, it's a cool place if you just like Just rolling into cool shit. It's how I saw Deathmatch Wrestling for the first time. Um, yep. Yeah. I, we went over for, you know, a, a holiday in in Japan, but we went to see Wrestle Kingdom as one of the main things we were going to do. And then we just wanted to catch whatever wrestling was on at the time. And obviously it being such a huge show, everyone else has got their shows on at the same time. And uh, yeah, yeah, we, um, a a friend of ours, her brother is Chris Vice, Australian wrestler. Yep. And he was over for zero one and she was like, Oh, you should go check him out. And we're like, Oh cool. So we bought tickets to zero one uh, and they had sort of a bit of that kind of vibe going on, and they but they were handing out flyers and stuff, and we ended up with a flyer for Big Japan, and it was like the next yeah. night, and we're like, do you want to go? And it's like main event, 100 light tubes, Abdullah Kobayashi <laughs> title defense. And I'm like, I don't know what this is going to be. And then like people are putting on like ponchos and goggles, and they're hanging up light tubes, and we're like, this is interesting. And by the end, we were like, we need to see this always everywhere. Like that was fucking crazy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I think if you haven't if you haven't been exposed to it, it's a it's a pretty uh, big eye opener. I always kind of get a bit of a chuckle, you know. Someone <laughs> they wrestling asks me about it, I'm like, oh, you should have a look at this. <laughs> Trying to explain that to someone, it's yeah, it's a, especially seeing it live. Yeah, <clears throat> big big Japan don't mess around. Their guys are doing some some pretty you know crazy stuff. stuff. Yeah, <clears throat> cool crowds though. They they've always got a really cool uh, 
always got a really cool atmosphere at their shows. I did tours for them when I was a kid. Yeah. Was like uh, 21, 22, maybe 23. I did a couple of tours with them. Sure. Um, with Pondo and Kasai uh, and stuff, and that was cool there then too. Yeah, yeah. ages yeah. ago, 2000. That's nuts. And yeah, the fan base great. is wild, right? Because you'll be there, and it's not like it is here where it's just, you know, 18 through 40-year-old dudes or whatever. It's like children and grandparents and like it's just like it's what they they go and see you know what i mean it doesn't have like the stigma it sort of has in the west i guess so like i literally seen literally seen <laughs> ladies with purple hair rinses picking broken pieces of light tube out of their hair who were like three rows deep at a freedom show yeah and all i could think of is i don't think i know any like 70 year old women at home or 70 year old men at home that would want to go watch deathmatch wrestling live like, you might be able to convince one to just have a look at it on a phone or on a TV or something. Yeah. These people are, like, actually having an outing with it, which is just, that's just the culture over there. Wrestling was such a popular thing, particularly yeah. with that demographic. Like, I've got heaps of friends over there that sort of fall in that range of being, like, you know, early 50s, close to 60. Yeah. And they talk about their parents who were there, like, late 70s or around that, even 80, some of them, but absolutely grew up loving wrestling, and that's yeah. how they've gotten into it. For Japan, you know, that was a huge time for wrestling for those sort of people's parents. Like, 70s wrestling in Japan was massive <clears throat> for all Japan, on, <clears throat> all Japan, New Japan, all Japan, I think. But, like, when Abdullah the Butcher was going there with uh, Giant Barber and even that sort of going out to Stan Hansen and, all, you know, into the 80s and stuff, they were massive. They, they, they were stars. Everybody yeah. in Japan that I ever spoke to, you mentioned, like, a guy like Abdullah, Abdullah the Butcher, it was like, he was on TV ads and stuff. Mm. Same with Original Sheik. They all had their own sort of like little TV gimmicks and stuff. Those guys were like massive stars over there. It was huge how much that sort of spread into that age bracket for the, for the like, you know, sort of our people's parents and stuff, really. Yeah. That was, was huge that it's carried on. It, and it's that whole thing, right? It's that like big in Japan thing, yeah, where people can just be huge stars in Japan for just being a novelty at a thing. You know what I mean? It, you don't have to necessarily totally, be like yeah. a, a rock star or a pop star or a movie star like you do in the West. It's like, that was crazy when this guy did this and now he's like, you know, selling canned coffee and stuff. I know like Pondo had his <laughs> yeah. own beer and stuff, you know, like yeah. it's just crazy. And these people, like when when uh, Mad Dog says like, uh, you know, these little old ladies are at deathmatch shows, we're not even talking about like, Hurricane Hall at the Tokyo Dome. We're talking like Shinkiba First Ring, a (laughs) warehouse in the back of fucking nowhere that you've got to walk to for 15 minutes from a train station. They're there. I was sitting next to them. freezing, yeah. Yeah, I was getting covered in wood chips as they mince these barbed wire boards to cater and all these guys just destroying (laughs) it. And, like, they're just picking glass and wood out of their hair, laughing along, clapping and stuff. It's it's an amazing... Really having a good time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing place. Tell you what, let, let's get into it. We, we'll get into it in order. Let's rewind a little bit more. So your first um, exposed to wrestling, you grow up with your, your brothers, you're into it. It's sort of part of your the fabric of your existence as you're growing up. At what point are you able to find and train in wrestling like how old are you how do you even find that in australia because i grew up in geraldton wa and i had posters of like x park and triple h and shit on my wall but that seemed really fucking far away you know what i mean like it seemed yeah impossible to ever do that without moving to america so how do you even find that man it wouldn't have been something i would have considered like possible at all so i've I'd, I'd lost contact with watching wrestling and stuff probably from the age of like, I don't know, not 
not a long period of time, but from like 10 to about 13. Then as soon as wrestling started coming on pay TV in Australia and it being accessible, it sort of went, oh, well, this is, you know, interesting. That'd be kind of uh, fun to do that as a, as a kid. And just, you know, how, how cool would it be to do that sort of stuff? I ended up, like, when I was about 15, thinking if I can't do that, maybe I should do something similar to it. And that was sort of at the time when, like, UFC and stuff was getting on VHS tapes as well and getting traded around with people. It wasn't super, super popular, but it was pretty well-known. So me and one of my cousins found a place to go do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So we went there for, like, maybe 18, 19 months. And through there, there was a guy, for the life of me, can't remember his name, who knew someone who did pro wrestling. And we were just discussing it one day. And uh, I went online found just like you know, literally did like a yahoo search for aussie wrestling and found just at that time i think it was 99 mm-hmm. that there was a company called awf with uh tnt up in sydney mm-hmm. and they were bringing out marty Janetti and sabu and a couple other guys and I, I knew sabu and i knew those guys just watching tapes and stuff mm-hmm. you could get ecw vhs tapes from certain blockbusters and stuff back as a kid so i knew their names so i'm like oh wow might actually be someone interesting to go and watch me and another guy uh spike spike steel used to wrestle you know 10 years ago went down watched their show and ended up the we missed that 99 when we caught the following year we went i think might have been like a, a 10 months after that we went and seen their show and it was awesome small crowd wasn't big it was like at latrobe uni somewhere like early 2000 or early 2000 i think so maybe like january february something like that and they had two cold scorpio psychosis uh, Blitzkrieg, a couple other guys. The show was great. And I left Matt, and I think I was 16 and a bit then, and went, I, I think I'd, I'd love to do this. This is great. Like uh, uh, watching guys do dives and stuff like that and just seeing a crowd get into it. And I already really liked wrestling. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I thought, you know, this doesn't have to be any different to any other sport. Like people go and play football, people go and, you know, tennis, anything like that, right? I thought it doesn't have to be different to that. Surely there's got to be some way you can learn how to wrestle. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of contacting them. They were based out of Sydney. I was only 16 at the time. I think you had to be 18 to train in Sydney. I found just through more searches and talking to people at that show, actual wrestlers and stuff, I just hung around. That there was guys out in Sunshine Training, which would have been under George Julio. I didn't know that at the time. And then I found another school out standing on, which was PCW school, when they didn't even have a school. It was just they had a ring. They had some bodybuilder guys. And they had George training dudes at their school and another old school Aussie wrestler, Kurt von Schneider, training guys at their school. And you didn't have to be 18 there. They were like, they had like a kids class from like 14 to 16. I was 16. I didn't know about the kids class. At 16, I already had like a beard, already shaved my head bald. <laughs> so I rocked up and I'm just like... Looking hey, like I'm you like, do now? <laughs> yeah, pretty, essentially pretty much. I just looked like that, but squashed down a bit as a kid, a bit younger in the face. So I'm just like, hey, man, I'm 18. Of course I'm 18. Sure, and you should let me come in and train. And when, as soon as I walked in, I'm like, this is kids in here. I don't have to bother lying about this. <laughs> I just know I didn't have to. <laughs> so I started training through there. And like, like everybody starts, when they start wrestling, it's terrible. Like we went in there and uh, George was just, uh, I don't think everyone knows George Julio in Australia. But sure. back then, he was already old to me, even though he wasn't old now that, you know, I know he would have been like maybe 57 or something like that or 56, something like that when I met him. Yeah. And he just looked like the buffest, nicest old dude ever. Yeah. And I mean... He he was the best person that you could have bumped into train if you wanted to be a wrestler. Mm-hmm. It was none of that uh, ridiculous stuff you hear about, like you know guys just running people until they cry and yeah. make them vomit and taking like shit, bullying them. 
All of which, by the way, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest makes wrestlers any better whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Like, sure, get your fitness as good as you can. Sure, push people as hard as you can. But if people are getting injured and they can't wrestle because they had to train too hard, it means their training wasn't, you know, yeah. appropriate. Like, if you can't get up and walk around and do it again the next day, then you're not going to get any better because you're missing time. Yeah. And he was never like that. He pushed people really hard, especially with, with weights. He was a lunatic with weights back then. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of, like, getting people to learn wrestling properly... He was the best person I could have bumped into at, at that time. He was nice, super, super professional, was really, you know, stringent on making sure people got the fundamentals of wrestling properly, how to put holds on people, <clears throat> and just pushing the issue of, you know, little things are only little things. If you do 100 little things in a match and all 100 of them look fantastic, overall your match is going to stand out better than everyone else's. Yeah. He was always really good with that stuff, and, and you know, I can't think of how many people it would have come through him that ended up being amazing. So, you know, it's one of those, you could never have an argument that he wasn't a great trainer. If you couldn't get something good out of being trained by George, I think that's on you, not on him. Yeah. He was, yeah. I'm super lucky to have bumped into him and not anyone else. Or, you know, there could have been a million different people I could have bumped into, but basically the first person through PCW that I got introduced to was him, and he was always uh, awesome to train with. And he was still young enough then. Like I say this to people now, you see George, people who've only known him the last 10 years I've known George uh, 23, 24 years Mm -hmm. when I met George he could still take a backdrop, he could still take a standard suplex, he could still take a body slam Mm -hmm. he could still take hip tosses and he was 57 then and I think had been wrestling for 15, 20 25 years who knows by that point so I got that point with him that not only was I lucky enough to bump into him but I was lucky enough to bump into him when he was still young and super yeah. fit and could still get in the ring and still move around with you at a, at a really incredible level. I mean, I wrestled George his second last match in a singles match yeah, um, five years ago or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Shock him with time. Uh-huh. But I had a blast wrestling him. He wasn't um, difficult to wrestle at all. He was still George. Yeah, He still, if you know how to move around with him and stuff mm-hmm. and, and work with him, he could still have really good matches, and you could see he was having a blast. It was a really good honor just to, to get back in there and roll around with it. But yeah, like so for cool. starting, for starting to have gotten to know George and, and and gotten the best experience with him, and same I met Lobo through through George, yeah, um, through PCW, both through those same scenarios, and just they're the people that helped me the most. And yeah, couldn't couldn't be more grateful for it. That's that's amazing, man. Like um. When you talk about not knowing Australian wrestling and things like that, it was the same for me. I was not exposed to it. Jeez, I didn't. I didn't go to my like first Australian wrestling match. I think it was EPW here in Perth until I was like in my thirties. You know what I mean? I just didn't even know it existed. That said, though, the name George Julio is is like one that I just knew when I started hearing it. You know what I mean? Like like since I've been doing the podcast and people have referenced it, it was already a name I'd heard. I don't know how I'd heard it. It was just one. And any time I speak to like any kind of Australian wrestler that's had anything to do with him or references him in any way, it, it is like you talk about him. You know what I mean? They talk about it like this legend of Australian wrestling. And the fact that he was in the business of like, you know, I think wrestling can be a pretty kindy business as everybody knows. And there are those trainers that are into sort of get a fee out of people, then scare them out of the business sort of thing. He was in the business of training wrestlers and wanting to make better, safer, you know, good wrestlers, it speaks to, you know, his legacy as, as guys like yourself uh, move on, you know, and pass that stuff on. 
when I mean probably not when I started, but maybe like four or five years into wrestling, which is still not like that's still new. Mm-hmm. It still is really new. I remember being down at George's on like Tuesday nights, and on Tuesday nights, maybe five years in, when I was say like twenty-one, which would have been two thousand and five, two thousand and four around then, it would have been like. 25 to 30 wrestlers down there Wow! on a Tuesday night between, you know, 6 and, say, 9 o'clock at night. And that was just in this little shed in George's backyard. The whole side of, like, you couldn't even run the ropes that was that tight there on two sides. And the whole other sides of the ropes would be people waiting to get into the ring. It would be like, you know, people running a tag match. And in the gym to the side of that, he'd have another 10 or 15 guys working out there. And they were but that was always like that. George did a lot for Aussie wrestling. Wow. And if he wasn't around, like, I, you know, people always say these, like, big dramatic things. If these people weren't around, nothing would have happened. And I'm not saying that. If he wasn't around, probably someone else would have stood up and done it. But the fact that he was around and so willing to take in so many guys, and I won't, I won't say, like, what he was charging people, but it was just, what he was charging people was so on the border of nothing. Was just like wow. yeah. it was. It's it was literally just like, hey, here's just something just so like you know, when you, if you've got maintenance on the ring and you know, or if you want to have some have a barbecue for guys and stuff. What he was charging was was what you would refer to for in any other industry as extreme mate rates. Like wow, you know, I think if people knew this, the sort of numbers I'm talking about, you would just you giggle to yourself when you hear like. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do it either because wrestling is business and if you're training people and you've got a factory and you've got overhead paying guys, all that adds up. When, you know, you go and do a bit of research online and see what people charge these days for like, you know, like a wrestling camp or like, you know, like any of that sort of stuff. If you knew what, what George was charging back in the day for what is essentially some pretty good knowledge, like he'd, he'd been around festival holidays. He, I don't know if people actually even know this, but George used to tag with Jimmy Snooker Back in the day, he, they travelled around Australia tagging for quite some time. George wow. was, he was around a lot of guys. And George isn't a braggart. He doesn't like, it's not like he'd be telling every person he bumps into. But there's a photo of George and, and Snooker on the wall in his house. Like, yeah. just him and those two just chilling. They were, he was around a lot of those guys. He was around Milano before Milano was old. You know, he was around Milano when Milano was a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, not just him, but other, other guys, you know, acts from overseas and stuff. Mm-hmm. George was around all those guys at the time. So, you know, for, for very little money, he was often pretty good advice to a lot of people, and he helped a lot of people. Most of the guys that he turned out were, were good workers and good wrestlers. Like, everyone, you're not going to get everyone that's great, but the ratio of good to bad for people come through his gym was a lot more good than there were bad. And he was welcoming to absolutely everyone, of every age, every nationality, all everything. You know, like, everything. He never said no to anyone. He was always honest to everyone, always professional. Yeah. Um, I, I did an interview not that long ago with Deathmatch Down Under champion Vixen, uh, and she was telling me, you know, she walked in there, 16-year-old girl, you know what I mean? Like, never set foot in a ring, did anything, and, you know, he became like a huge, you know, supportive figure in her life and helped her achieve everything that she wanted to do in wrestling when nobody... You know, all her friends and family thought it was ridiculous that, you know, a girl wanted to be a wrestler and stuff, you know. He was giving people those opportunities no matter who they were, and that's it's really amazing, man. I, one of the things that stood out to me, and I know it's not a, and it's not a huge deal, but I remember, like, and, and times have changed, like, and people don't, don't realise it was 20 years ago, people were totally different. But I remember being down at George's, 
with some of the biggest meatheads you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Lovely people, but officially meatheads. Yeah. And there was more than one or two guys down there that were gay to train with us. Yeah. And no one, like George, he was in his late 50s from Malta. Mm-hmm. He, he, he is in that in that age group of where, you know, people are going to have some strange views. It'll be that view. Yeah. He never gave a shit at all. Yeah. And no one would ever act weird to those people because George was there. Mm-hmm. Happy Jack weird. You know, if George was cool, you got to be cool with it. Yeah. George was cool with everyone. Like, same with, you know, he had, like, African dudes training down there back in the day, Maltese dudes training there back in the day, gay people, straight people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everyone was fine with it. And, that, you know, that's just George. That's not because someone told him, like, got to do this yeah no one said you had to do that shit back then he was just yeah exactly oh, we're doing that it's a different time you know out, people yeah. would just say that yeah, shit yeah. Oh, horrible shit openly you know what i mean Absolutely. like yeah yeah, and, yeah none yeah. of that that's, you know when you think about that i never seen any of that there even back then yeah, I think wow. that was pretty prevalent that sort of stuff george has always been just just super super nice and you know he's a pretty religious guy too mm-hmm. and never seen him push any of that sort of stuff on people he's just this is wrestling this is training we don't have arguments here. We just come here and do our thing. If you want to argue, argue somewhere else, basically. Yeah, you know, we had a really good setup for making young guys good wrestlers. Yeah. Wow. That's that's fascinating. Um, how does <laughs> how does George feel about your forays into like hardcore and deathmatch wrestling? Is he a purist or is he like uh, happy that you're happy? Like, how does he look at stuff like that? He looked at it the same as how I felt he looked at everything else, like with letting you know, being really accepting of everybody. Yeah. Like I know George's era of wrestling. It's funny, people don't associate it with hardcore wrestling. Mm-hmm. But the stuff before like eighty five, like you go back to the seventies, which George was around back then. Seventies mm-hmm. and eighties, even early eighties, a lot of those matches were just blood matches. So it's not that obscure for George to see that. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah, like I do. The old festival, whole matches, every single match, every main event, guys bleed. They bleed off nothing. And, yeah. you know, God takes a punch, he fucks it up. So, I know George originally <clears throat> talking to me about barbed wire matches and glass and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a, you know, super, hey, this is a great idea. But um, my first barbed wire match I had, I was, I was maybe like a month off being 18 years old. Oh, wow. So, so I remember... Uh, it was some trouble and stuff that had come up from it. Like uh, someone had complained to a council or something. Mm-hmm. It ended up being a complaint on the radio that ended up being a complaint on Channel 7 at some point. I was like 17 and So I remember <clears throat> being a bit weird. I think George might not, might not be cool with this. And I remember he asked me to bring him a copy of the match. And I sat down and watched the match with him. And he said, you know what? I think everybody overreacted. I thought it was a good fight. And that's George. That's if, great. If, if it sells, and you're not getting injured, and you can get up the next day and do it again, and you can make money doing that. He's pretty supportive of that. He's an old school wrestler. Essentially, you can you can draw a crowd in, and you can make money, and you're doing it. You're not you're not in the hospital. Probably not a bad deal. Go yeah, for it. <laughs> exactly. Short amount of time. Good good money. You're good to go. Does he? I, um... I had George. I had George ringside for me when I wrestled Sabu. I don't know three three years ago, whenever that was. When yeah. they came out here. Yeah, I'm, I I went straight to George. Went, hey, you know, look. This is a guy I loved watching when I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to have a chance to wrestle him if he can make it down. I'd love to have you at the ringside with me as a manager. Uh-huh. He was there for that man. It was great. That's cool. That's a that's like you know uh, an idol and your trainer and everybody there all at once. Yeah, so man, those that's why moments I asked him. were special. He seemed surprised I asked him, but that's why I asked him. And who else would I want there, right? Yeah, that's dope. So how did you 
you go from training, you're you're really enjoying it. You've got this supportive coach. You're you know you're doing all these things. How do you then find stuff like hardcore and deathmatch and stuff, or does it find you? Like you talk about your first barbed wire match being you know just before you're eighteen or whatever. Was it just something that was brought to you in a, a, a local indie you were doing, or were you like watching? you know, the ECWs and the FMWs and things like that, and you, you were looking for it? So my, my first match, I would have been like 16. I started training when I was 16. I would have had a match before I was 17. And yeah. by that point, I just watched WCW, WWF, like very, very little bit of ECW stuff. Uh-huh. But um, that's when I started wrestling. Uh, was either around the time of that moment, or maybe just before it, just people went behind tapes and barbed matches and stuff on it. And like normal people do, I looked at that and went, yeah, that looks kind of cool, but stuff that, I'm not doing that. But it's funny, when <laughs> you get into wrestling, you, you convince yourself after a while, you know, like, when when I got into wrestling, there was probably me and three or four friends that got into wrestling similar times. And friendly competitive with each other. So if someone takes a cow bomb, then you want to take something bigger, you want to take the bump to the floor, then you want to do a bigger bump to the floor. Within six months, we were doing some pretty big bumps <laughs> and then like that, at some point that was you know well, let's do ladder matches and stuff well I'll take a suplex on a ladder or I'll take this on a ladder like you know after a while you learn how to do that in a way that you can continue to do it and then well if I can land on a ladder then maybe I could land on some chairs wrapped in barbed wire hey you know that's not too bad if it's done in a certain way or whatever and then you push it further and further and at some point you look back and go hang on a second tiring it's just broke to us I think I just set my leg on fire before. I have no idea how I got to be doing this, but here I am. So It just escalates and escalates, and, and then it's normalized. It does. <laughs> it does. And at some point, uh, you know, if you do it for long enough, I've been for 23 years of wrestling. <clears throat> it's just another part of it. It's just another thing. It's not anything like... If someone was to ask me who's not in wrestling about death match, my advice to them is doing these things isn't important. Doing good matches is. If you can do death matches that happen to be good matches, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. But it's not the be all and end all. I've never pushed anyone towards, you know, rolling around in sharp foreign objects and getting seriously painful things done to them. But if you love wrestling, I don't think you necessarily have to, death match, to love death match. You don't necessarily have to hate it either. I find the crazy divide amongst people of all walks of life who would, you know, from it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life to it should be shut down and anyone who touches it should be banned for life. Mm. These things don't have to be that extreme. Like, I hear people's arguments against death match and I'm not here to convince people that they're wrong. And sometimes the arguments I hear them say are 100% true. But no matter what you tell me, I can watch Terry Funk versus Anita where they have an exploding barbed wire match, which is essentially pretty ridiculous gimmick. Talking about explosions going off. Yeah. That match has still worked with amazing psychology. The crowd's still buying into all of it. And at the end of the day, it's in a 60,000-seat arena with like 30,000 people. That's a huge draw for a competitive match. Like, that was really early FMW. Mm-hmm. So I can hear the arguments that people say, but when I watch a match like that, those arguments don't matter to me because if you just tell me, oh, I don't like this garbage and they don't know what they're doing. Sure, I have seen some death matches where that happens to be true. I've also seen Terry Funk and Anita, and that is not true. I've also seen Takeda and Kasai have singles matches that if you happen to have taken all of the sharp things out of it and had the same match with just the same spots, it still would have been an amazing match. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, I fall somewhere in between the middle of those things, but yeah, I, 
I, I didn't go looking for death racks when I started. I slowly got into it. When I started getting into it, I was lucky. I had Lobo around who was a big, big pusher of, hey, don't just do things that hurt because they hurt. For two reasons. One, because most people will bomb out in their 30s to do that in their 20s. You'll get 10 good years and you finish. You don't want that. You want to last as long as you can. And for the second reason, it's not actually good to watch. Like, if you go and watch just a guy hit another guy in the head with a light tube, Sure, the first time you see it, you go, wow, that looks pretty impressive. You see just that for four, four matches. Just starting with dudes hitting each other with light tubes. It's not entertaining at all. Now, he was a big pusher of if you're going to do something that's dangerous, it may as well be for a good reason and a good match. You can show someone, get a copy of it on DVD, have a look at the source of that. You're not just getting hurt for no reason, and it's not just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, that helped me heat. And I, I found when I went to Japan that a lot of guys over there were of that same mindset. They were doing some stuff that was batshit crazy, but in ways that they could survive and in matches that made sense. So, I, 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 for me, that's why I liked it. And that's what made me go, oh, I can already take some decent bumps. I can already do some pretty cool spots. Maybe if I get this sort of stuff in, it could have some really cool fights. And I, I, I feel like I have. I hope I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it makes sense, you know what I mean? It's not like you started and then immediately plunged into the deep end of the pool. I've definitely interviewed people who have done that, but, you know, it, it started and it was a natural progression, then you got to where you were. Um, did you... So from there, what's it, What's the timeline for me? So obviously the there's the, the whole controversy to talk to talk about, you know, with Lobo and stuff, but then there's also your tours of J- Japan, like you said, Big Japan and starting to do freedoms and all that kind of stuff. Now, did, which sort of ha- happened first there, chicken or the egg? Which way did we go? Was it the Australian stuff ramped up to a point where it got shut down and then you started to go overseas or were you already doing the overseas tours? No, so the first death match I did was with Lobo. I'd done matches with like know, tables, ladders, stuff with like even like barbed wire spots and stuff like that, but uh-huh. nothing like a specific, mm-hmm. this is the whole purpose of the match type, death matching type thing. Mm-hmm. So I did that with him and then Everyone flipped out for a couple of months. And it just sort of, you know, died over as these things do. Because, I mean, it's not like we broke the law or anything like that. There wasn't any law to have broke back then. Yeah. Nothing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So once that passed over, PCW went back to running shows. Mm-hmm. I went back to wrestling shows. It all sort of blew over completely within, you know, say a year. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably when I was 21. I might be out a year or so in either direction, but it would yeah. have been 21, 22 actually took that match that I had with Lobo and a couple other like nastier hardcore matches that I'd had mm-hmm. over the years, put them on a tape, got hold of a deathmatch wrestler in the States, Madman Pondo, who was just yes. a super cool dude, super friendly, Still is. genuine guy and, mm-hmm. and trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And um, he had contact with the referee, Daniel Beaumont in Australia. He you know, was like the middleman between me and Pondo. Send the tape over, Pondo had a look at that barbed wire match and went, oh, I didn't know guys in Australia were doing like proper death matches and stuff, which I took as a nice compliment. Yeah. And he said, you know, if, if you want to get over to Japan, I can work some stuff out for you. I ended up over there for maybe seven weeks or six weeks, something like that. And uh, I think I had like five matches with BJW and just a bunch of other random indie shows here and there. But I would have only been like 21 or 22. And that first tour, like I was so lucky to get matches that I got. I ended up having like a thumbtack death match with me, Pondo, and a uh, US death match wrestler, Masato. 
yes, at Corrigan Hall when I was like 21 or 22. Jesus Christ. I've, I've still Legends. Got a, I've still yeah. got a copy of it on DVD somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was around, I think it might have even been like a week before Christmas or something like that. Yeah. So it was a super cool memory for me. Mm-hmm. And that was the last match I had there before I came home from that first tour. Mm-hmm. That same tour I wrestled uh, me, Masada, Pondo, and another indie wrestler from the States. I don't know if he's still around, but I still remember his name. He's a nice guy, Jason Ray. Against Wing Kanamura, uh, Kuroda, uh, a couple other, you know, like big name Japanese guys from mm-hmm. FMW Wing. Mm-hmm. And there was like maybe three and a half, four, four thousand people at that show, maybe more in like a big stadium type thing, which was just super cool. Big eight man tag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, so that was, you know, I was really young, 21, 22, something like that. Wow. I went back there again a couple of years later, same for Big Japan. And again, just doing little indies and stuff. And then I didn't really go back there for maybe four years after that. I was just doing stuff in Australia. Mm-hmm. And the next time I went back there, I just started working with you know, pretty much anyone I could. Like, I didn't say no to any matches. I had a guy over there in Japan that was helping me get matches, just random indie shows. So sometimes I'd go there and do like like 10 matches in 14 days and stuff like that, and then have like a week off yeah, and then come back to Australia. Uh, and then, yeah, just towards the end of going to Japan the last few times, obviously I haven't been there for ages because of COVID, like like everyone else, they're, they're back open up and whatnot now, so I haven't had a chance to get back over there. But previously to them shutting down, I was going over and doing stuff for Freedoms. Again, got lucky, got to do Deathmatch at Corrigan Hall with um, Kenji Fukumoto, did like a barefoot thumbtack thing over there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just even, even actually tagged with Dixon over there once at Corrigan Hall for like this big end-of-year show where it was like DDT, Big Japan, I think Mishinoki Pro and a couple other guys all have this like big New Year's Eve show at Corrigan Hall. Yeah, wow. Lucky enough to be on that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'm starting to go in Japan. I'm sorry to go back to the start. Yeah, when I was starting to go there, I would have been early 20s, really young, really, really young, and probably continued to go there until, you know, what, just six months before COVID, I guess. Yeah, just before that, it all broke down. Yeah, it was, it was like really consistent, wasn't it? Yo. Let me stop you right there. I just need to holler at everybody and tell them about NordVPN. This service has been a bit of a game changer for me, man. Not only are they one of the first services, you know, to believe in me and to believe in this podcast, which is pretty amazing, but it's also been great to like pick up my internet access and throw it around the world. I've been able to access all the streaming services. I've been able to check out different shopping sites. It's keeping me safe and sound on the internet and protecting all of my important data. It's been pretty damn awesome. So if you want to give it a chance for yourself, if you want to try it out, if you want to get amongst the glory that is NordVPN, just go to nordvpn.com slash feels and use the code feels to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan and at one additional month for free. Uh, It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, which is pretty sweet. So yeah, nordvpn.com slash feels and use the code feels now let's get back to the interview so there's so much to break down in 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 that time and so much detail just to tell people that aren't familiar we briefly breezed over like the lobo match and the the controversy that was like you said you guys didn't break the law but it was like sort of like this big blow-up thing do you want to run run everybody through the stipulation of what i I can't even recite it because it was crazy but the the way it was told to me by joel bateman and i've also seen the match uh is it was uh, a big show was it pcw you said 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, their show, Carnage. I think. Take it a guess here, but I want to say it's probably like two thousand and two thousand and one or two or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, so the the stipulation was ludicrous. <laughs> it was <laughs> I remember, ridiculous. I remember talking to Lobo, and he said the idea for it was back in the day when FW used to do their like big posters that they put up in halls and stuff. They'd have their stipulation for the main event would be on the poster. And there would be so much stuff that it would just take up so much room on the poster to say what the stipulation was. <laughs> and I remember he said, I kind of want it like that. I want it to look like that. Mm-hmm. So it was like, no ropes, barbed wire, fists of broken glass, 40,000 raining thumbtacks, ladder death batch or something like that. It was some <laughs> obscenely long thing. And I was like, I, 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 for me, I was like super green. I'd been around for a year and a half. I started like halfway through being 16. I was just, I'm not even a year and a half. I think I was like a couple of weeks off turning 18. Wow. From memory, that show was in September and I turned 18 in October. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, this could go not so well. Like I don't have a lot of experience with this stuff. But mm-hmm. Lobo had been, you know, doing hardcore matches forever. And he just sat down with me and, and just, you know, helped me through everything and guided me through everything. And like, considering how green I was, that match still to this day, I don't have a problem with showing it to people. I think it's actually a good fight. Mm-hmm. I, like I enjoyed that match. I wouldn't have thought day, you were green watching watching it back. I wouldn't have thought that. I thought it was two like experienced, you know, deathmatch guys. Obviously, it's older footage and stuff now, and you know, yeah, it's different yeah. context. Well, that's him, but, man, it was him yeah. helping me through stuff. You know, yeah, down with you. What are you comfortable with? What can you do? What can I do? I think I'd rest. You know, I'd, that is probably only the, the then that would have only been the second or third time I'd ever been in the ring. Wow. Like for a match. We'd trained and stuff together mm-hmm. down at the, down the PCW, but that would have only been the first, second or third match we'd ever had. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I still like that match. Like, I'm happy to show that to people. There's not many matches from when I'm like 17 that I'd want to go, <laughs> bust that out and show it off to someone. Yeah. Most of them, it's like, oh, God, I've got no facial expression. I'm not selling. I'm not doing anything. I'm just sort of stumbling around. Oh, no. Oh, look, I did a nice move, but it's none of it's like <laughs> holds any like continuity or anything like that. And that match holds up all right. That match, strangely enough, the match I had a month before that, I still show people. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot that from back then that I'm keen to like bust out and put online or anything like that. Yeah, I'm sure that not a lot of people have things from when they were essentially teenagers that they want to show anybody, let, a, let alone a performance. Like, I don't even want to show pictures of myself from when I was that age. I don't think people understand just how ridiculous that time frame was. And I'm sure this stuff couldn't happen today, but like, I was in high school when that match happened and on the news at the same time. Yeah. So I'm in like year 12, going to school for exams and people are like, was that, was that shit on the news about you? <laughs> uh, yeah. Is, is that going to be trouble? Uh, Guess we'll find out. <laughs> uh, don't really know. Okay. And then like teachers and stuff were like, is everything okay? you got like cuts all over your arms. You know, I'm not like self-harming. Well, kind of am, but not in the traditional sense. <laughs> not in the sense that you need to be concerned, is what I should say. It's just getting like really bizarre looks. God, I got to get out of here. I can't. I can't. Jesus <laughs> Christ. And for, for anybody that doesn't know about the controversy, so like because this uh, show had like kids and stuff at it, it was a somewhat family friendly show until this ridiculous stipulation. Um, it, it blew up in the media as like. I, I think the term the term they used, what was it? Organised barbarism, they called it. Yeah. And, what, and it, like, what, it's funny to think back at it now. It wasn't funny at the time. But what happened is they were pretty much a family show while doing, you know, table matches and 
stuff, stuff that's not like visually graphic. I mean, it's still dangerous seeing crazy power watch at the rings of the floor through the tables and stuff, but no one was getting like, you know, essentially cut up or anything. And then this one show, they promoted it. To be fair, and I was there at the time, so I know it. I know what the posters and stuff look like. Yeah. I actually still have the posters. Wow. They promoted it as not being a children's show, and they made it as like the main event wouldn't go on. I think it didn't go on until I could be wrong, but I'm quite sure it was well after midnight. Oh, wow. And they put warnings all through the night saying, hey, we didn't make it an over-18 show. If you don't want to stay for the main event, or if you've got young ones, or anyone who's particularly squeamish, it might be kind of mm-hmm. And granted, there would have been people who sillyly went, we're going to stay. It's just wrestling. It's not real. How bad it's going to be? And yeah. then seen it went, oh, no. Okay, it's significantly <laughs> worse than what I thought. <laughs> I understand that. As an adult, I get I get it, but that's probably not the best. But it's like when by the time it got to the media, that's not how it was said. By the time it got to the media, and it was through another wrestler, and no arguments for like 20 years ago or whatever more, I think he'd had a problem either with Deathmatch Wrestling, that's how he framed it, but I think probably more he had a problem with PCW due to some bullshit wrestler political stuff that I have no interest in. <laughs> and um, I think he called like 3AW and insinuated that, you know, this is what had happened. And I don't think he necessarily told big lies. <laughs> he just told 3AW, you know, you know, that, you know, these two guys were running through barbed wire and punching each other with glass on their knuckles and stuff. Yeah. By the, I don't think he bullshitted the way. I think he just said what had happened and that's enough. But I think the media then either misheard him or, or the you know one guy whispers something to another guy and it changes a little bit. By the time I'd seen it on the news, and I think Lobo still got a lot of this footage from, from the news back in the day, mm-hmm. it was like they were spraying the audience with blood <laughs> and they were throwing glass into the crowd and stuff. And I mean, you've seen the match. Yeah, It's possible some blood went, you know, Somewhere. Under the guardrail, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't describe it as anyone was like intentionally spraying the audience and nobody threw any glass into the no. crowd or anything like that. And it'd been exaggerated quite a bit. Like I said, by the, by the time George had asked it to say it, I'm like, oh no, because I respect the hell out of George. I'm like, oh, I feel a bit weird about this. He's got trouble. Mm-hmm. He might be a bit pissed off that, you know, like you're damaging the, you know, the image of type thing. By the time George said it, George said it, went, ah, oh, fuck, man. This is nothing. This is like back in the old day, just people bleeding everywhere. Yeah. I'm like, oh. George gets it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he's, yeah, like, he's like seeing all this shit on the media and he's like, what's my student done? And then he yeah, actually sees I, it I and he's like, this is like, that It had been built up so bad, he was expecting like, you know, basically he would, he would have needed to shoot someone for George to have gone. It was warranted to be everyone to be pissed off as they were. Yeah, exactly. But none like, of us knew, and it's like none of us knew, like wrestling wasn't, wrestling in Australia is not that huge now. Let's be, let's be honest, it's, it's gotten a lot bigger, but it's not like the biggest mainstream thing ever. But back then, there was nothing. Like yeah. when that got to the news, mm-hmm. it was just literally the Aussie wrestling promoter going, oh shit, Channel 7 called us. They want us to make statements and stuff. Do you want to make a statement? I'm not making a statement. I'm a child. <laughs> I shouldn't even be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask how old I am. I'm like, and they're like, well, by the time it's actually come up, they're like, well, you're 18 now. Just say you're 18. I'm like, I don't know that that's any better. Like, <laughs> unless I'm saying I'm 30 or 25 or something, I don't, you know, I don't want to say anything. So yeah. I didn't. Yeah. It was a crazy time, man. There was no, like, no one to help you out or anything. Like, you just sort of is what it is. Yeah. I, I kind of, uh, I mean, to look at it, I mean, you did look, I, I saw that footage. You look like you do now. <laughs> like, so yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought you were like like going for your fucking exams. That's ridiculous. 
Yeah, man, I was wrestling at, uh, back in the day. I was having matches at Crown Casino before I was old enough to get into Crown Casino. I probably shouldn't say that on there, but yeah, yeah, I was wrestling at All Star Cafe when I was, I'm almost certain I had a match there when I was 17. Pretty certain. Yeah. 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 I wrestled Chuck there when I was 17. Chuck and Chaos. Yeah, right. I, I also imagine, like, for you guys as well, like, you would have finished the match and it would have just felt like a normal show. It's not like people were suddenly knocking down the doors, like, uh, mutual friend of ours and, you know, one of the brains behind DMDU, uh, Joel Bateman, was like a child in that crowd. You know what I mean? Like, he was in the front yeah, row and he had a great yeah. time. Like, uh, like you wouldn't have been... I didn't think anything. Think, we yeah. come back and, uh, look, if, with pro wrestling, if you come back and you fucked up enough that you can't, like, you can't work, mm-hmm. then you've done something you shouldn't have done. To sure. me, that's a disappointment. It's no good. I come back from that match and I clearly remember seeing a wrestler, a wrestler and a friend uh, it, was, it doesn't matter who it was, but it was Jay Andrews and his cousin wrestled at the time mm-hmm. and made eye contact with him. They said, are you okay? And look, I, I don't like exposing wrestling. I'm not like some crazy old school guy, but I don't genuinely yeah. try to go out of my way to expose wrestling. But they said, are you okay? And my exact words to them as, as like a two weeks off being 18 was totally fine. I could do it again tomorrow. If I had to, I'd love to. Yeah. And I remember Lobo, he had this huge gash on his head. Like, just obscenely large gash on wow. his head. Mm-hmm. And I went, are you okay? He was blood pissing everywhere. And he said, I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. And I said, I don't think I'll ever get to do something as cool as that again. Yeah. I remember everything about that match. I'm 39 years old now. And I have picture-perfect memory of walking down the ramp, looking into the audience and seeing how big the crowd was. And I remember every spot of that match in the order it happened, in the exact order it happened. And I remember saying to the low and just, Going, that was just that was just probably the best match I'd had. It's nothing to do with it being a death match. I just loved it. It was a long match. It was like nearly 30 minutes. So it probably would have been one of the longer matches I'd had at that point. Mm-hmm. And he was just happy, and I was wrapped that I could have that match with him, a guy who was like way better than me, mm-hmm. significantly more experienced than me, and, and to be able to give him that match and have him, because he'd wanted a barbed wire ropes match for years. Couldn't find someone to do it. Yeah. He'd wanted it for ages. And he was so happy, and <laughs> it makes me chuckle. But they couldn't stop this gash on his head from bleeding. It was that deep. His, his girlfriend at the time, who was just the nicest woman, was just stuffing gauze into it. And it's just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And I remember one of the other wrestlers' mums was a doctor. So she's coming just had a quick look over me and going, yeah, everything's fine. you got cuts everywhere, but nothing like horrifically so. Might need a stitch here or something like that. I come back into the room and they couldn't stop. My <laughs> didn't want to go to hospital. Yeah, his girlfriend's just putting more and more shit on his head. He's no, I'm not going to hospital. It's fine. It'll stop. It'll stop. Because if you're a wrestler, you go to hospital for stitches. You literally just sit there for six hours. By the time they get to you, usually not even bleeding anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why, why don't I ever do this? Mm-hmm. I come back into the room, and he just had a female sanitary pad duct taped to his head, <laughs> and it was bleeding through it. And his girlfriend's just going, "This is designed to stop blood, and this is doing nothing." Yeah. You get in the car and we're going to hospital. Fuck. And I didn't see him again until the next day because he had to go sit around in the hospital for hours. Oh. I can't wait to get stitched up. But he was wrapped. And I was wrapped. And I, I loved the match. And we all thought nothing. All I thought was I'd done some dangerous matches and stuff before. Probably not like violent-y or, you know, graphic-y with cuts and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think anything of it. I thought, I, honestly, I thought if there was going to be any trouble with it, it would have been before, not after it. And then, yeah, just it, it sort of caught on. It was an issue for... I was in the news for like a week or something like that. And then, you know, I was around wrestling talk for ages, for eight years. 
Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of it. How was it? I was going to wait to talk to it like uh, as we got there in the timeline, but it seems super appropriate. How was it or the, since Deathmatch Down Under has existed, there's been a, a couple of throwbacks and, and big references, obviously, to that match. It was a huge part of, you know, Joel Bateman's life and what he wanted to do. So, you know, he, he's referenced it not only in Lobo coming back and wrestling that match, which, which was amazing having him come back, but then him also sort of using a riff on that stipulation, you know, in the climax of the um, the Dream Tournament and stuff. How was how that stuff for you to be a part of and to see play out now, you know? It's weird because it makes me feel really old. <laughs> <laughs> you were, you were still like, in high school. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I like, look, man, I like it. It's, it's, it's cool to me to see that. It's cool to me seeing guys um, wanting to do death matches and do it properly, do it in a way where, you know, we can still tell a story, not just random junk. And, and monitor the DMD, you guys are good at that. They're not just random junk wrestlers. They're, they're putting on good matches that make sense. So it's cool for me to see those little throwbacks and stuff as well, but it does feel like forever ago. <laughs> it's, it's like a know, whole other I life. I, in, in my, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not 18. I'm not, I'm not super old. I'm still in my 30s, but just barely. But I mean, I wrestled for longer I've been a wrestler for longer than I haven't been. Yeah. You know, I started wrestling when I was 16. I'm 39 now. So yeah. I didn't wrestle for 16 years and I've wrestled for 23 years. Mm-hmm. So it's it's odd. It's odd when I see guys who are like, I forget, and they're like 21. They've just started wrestling and it's like, oh, you weren't born when I started. <laughs> it, does, it does make you feel really old. And um, at the same time, it like makes me want to try and like, I like to think um, I'm still competitive with wrestling. Like I'd like to think my matches still are competitive with what other guys are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as I can do that, like as long as I can feel myself, and I feel like I'm an honest person with myself more than anyone. Mm-hmm. If, if I feel like I could, you know, still have matches that are as good as anyone else's on the card, I'm going to wrestle for as long as I can. So, yeah, you know, wrestling is one of the, one of the good things with wrestling is it's a controlled environment. So you're in control of what you do and don't do, and provided you look after yourself, you should be able to lucky enough to go for a long time. Guys like Funk and Flair and that. I mean, I I didn't watch Flair's last match. I heard stuff about it, but I seen Flair and Hogan wrestling Australia when they come out for that tour mm-hmm. you know, ten years ago. Flair would have been in his sixties then, and he was still awesome to see live. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky enough that I can keep going. I'll go until I can't. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I can still help other people with wrestling, which I you know I always like doing with matches and stuff, always want to try and you know help other guys have have good fights and sort of instill a bit of like. Uh, workmanship with them or a bit of you know hey always try your best always try and make sure you have a good match remember that people have paid money to come and watch you they could be anywhere but they're here and they're paid to see you so always try and put a good show on mm-hmm. if I can keep doing that man I'm going to go for as long as I can absolutely absolutely I, I can tell you right now one of my favourite uh, DMDU matches was was it Poor Decisions I don't remember but it was you uh, Callan Butcher and Will Walker in a three-way death match with the shark cage. The one where you put him in the Boston Crab on top of the cage. <laughs> I fucking yeah, love that, man. <laughs> you really badly cut up in that match. Like, oh. Going through that face mask and those sort of things, that sort of stuff you'd never expect to see. Anytime one of those sort of things happens in the match, never happens. Yeah, absolutely. Think outside the box and and give people, like, a, a different thing to see, you know what I mean? Different angle, different stuff, you know. Yeah, I, I've never seen that before. When, when I mean, it's rare enough that a shark cage is, like, 
in a wrestling ring. <laughs> it's so it's like, so yeah. what can we what can we do with it that it hasn't been done before? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen guys in Japan 10 years ago doing a Northern Lights suplex on a cage. Jesus. Where it's like, that was for a pinfall. So the ref had to like stand on the top buckle, <laughs> lean up and over onto the top of the shark tank thing, which is, you know, tiny. Yeah. There's no room at all. And still do the, do the count and the guy still gets kicked out. Like, <laughs> That's a cool idea. That's a very cool idea. <laughs> That's so cool. So uh, I won't take up heaps more of your time, but I do want to want to quickly touch on what it was like going to Japan for the first time. Obviously, you you send off that tape. That match happens. Pondo makes the connections. He he was a pretty big star in Big Japan at that time. And what's it like? Because for me. You know, all this stuff's on the internet now. You know, you can see those matches and stuff, but you would have almost been sort of going in blind in a sense. You know what I mean? There's no streaming services where you can just jump on, you know, Big Japan or whatever. Like, so you're going over there, you've probably traded some tapes. How was it like pulling up in Japan? You don't have... I was about to say, you don't have a phone to tell you where to go like I do. I mean, you didn't have a phone <laughs> at fucking all. <laughs> like, and you're trying to get around. I was well prepared, yeah. Oh, man, I, I remember getting out of the airport and going, all right. No one speaks English here, and I have absolutely no idea what to do. All right, let's try and find a train. Let's try and do all that sort of stuff. But the wrestling side of it, the wrestling side of it was uh, instantly cool. And uh, through Pondo, just, you know, getting to hang out with guys that seen on old tapes and stuff, Kanemura and um, Mr. Danger and stuff. Yeah. It was awesome, that side of it. But, but yeah, definitely daunting. Like, just, just to be in another country on your own. Like, I had no friends with me for the first three weeks of that trip. I was on my own. So I got off at the airport, and I'm like, well, that's it. I don't have any contact with anyone. I guess I'll try and find a hotel in Japan with no knowledge of how public transport or anything works. Managed to pull all of it off, thankfully. And then, yeah, just the wrestling side of it was great. I got to, you know, hang out with some really cool people, uh, learn some cool stuff. And just, like, I've got really good good memories of those of those early trips I did. I remember, like, uh, being on tour with Big Japan, and it was like you're in a, in a bus with, you know, 15 wrestlers. You do a show, everyone gets in the bus, you drive six hours to some other town, help set up a ring, do another show, repeat. And yeah. I remember some of the in-between stuff from that, like seeing just shit that you would, shit that we would never think you would actually see. Yeah. I was backstage, or not backstage, sorry, we were staying at like, you know, a traditional Japanese Ryokin place where it's like, you know, the bedding's on the floor. Yeah, and it was all the wrestlers was, was in one enormous room. Like, the, like think of like an airport hangar style room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all sleeping together like on 20, the floor. Yeah. Yeah, there's like 20 of us in there. And I remember just saying, Daisuke Sakamoto from Big Japan and Kanemura shoot wrestling each other. Not not angrily at all. Just like, hey, we're all here and we're all sitting around having beers and stuff. Want to shoot wrestle each other for fun. (laughs) And watching them, you know, shoot on each other for five, ten minutes doing stuff. And it's weird because, you know, I was like a kid. And uh, not many other people were interested in doing it. And I was like, instantly, are you serious? Of course I'm going to wrestle with them. I was like, hey, man, want to have a crack? And just so I got to roll around with Sakamoto just, you know, for two, three minutes after eating sushi and having some beers and stuff. It, when I'm saying shoot wrestling, I don't mean no one was trying to hurt each other. It was yeah, just like yeah. trying, to, trying, to le- trying to legit pin each other and stuff. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's a cool memory that I got. That I, you know, Sakamoto and Kanemura were both. Sakamoto was, you know, much younger than he's an absolute legend now. He's yeah, huge yeah. over there. Was, was he already. physically? I mean, Sakamoto's huge, like physically huge as well. Like, was he? He was still pretty massive then, man. Yeah, he yeah. Was still, yeah, he was like he was still pretty buff. He, he probably, was 
he significantly was, buffer now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but he's a, a fucking weapon. He was actually um the co-main at that first Big Japan show I ever had because he was the strong champion at the time and he yeah, wrestled. Yeah. Fuck, what's that guy's name? Oh, I don't know. He was a he maybe was like, or something like that. Was this bald guy? He was like a dude. like a black sort of long mohawk type look. Black trench coat, wears a mouth guard, tattoo. Ah, uh, I know the guy you're talking about. Yeah, 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 I know who you're talking about. I can't and think of his name, but I know the guy. I didn't know either of them at the time, but I could tell it was a big deal. You know what I mean? The yeah. way the crowd were reacting and stuff and when they were squaring up and stuff, and then when he didn't overcome, it was a big deal when it happened, and I was like, this was fucking awesome, like, to see. Yeah. And so to to be there and to, like, be around, I guess, like, their locker room and life and the the model that you're describing, like, the bus trips and stuff, I mean, that's still the model they use today, right? Like, that's how totally. they yeah, get around yeah. Japan and do everything. Like, it, to be a part yeah. of that must have been fascinating. Yeah, it was cool, man, really cool. And I love doing that stuff. Freedom's the same of last time I was in Japan before all the COVID stuff, you know, I did a couple of shows in a row for them where we were all jumped on the bus and stuff, and they're all just super cool dudes. Super professional. Every one of them wants to have a great match. But uh, it was like Violent Jack and Tukasai was there, and uh, well, was there Mamma Suzaki and a bunch of other guys that have been around for ages. You know, mm-hmm. it's a pretty cool environment to be in. It makes you feel feel good, man, to be able to to be on the same shows as those guys. Because mm-hmm. they're like they're the they're, you know, like it or not, they're probably some of the best deathmatch guys that have that been around. Absolutely, and Kasai and those guys. They're not just deathmatch wrestlers. They're just great wrestlers that happen to be doing pretty fantastic deathmatches as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I loved all that stuff. And I, I hope I can get back over there soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I miss it. I miss it a lot. Not just the wrestling, just, you know, I had a lot of friends and stuff. Yeah. Just traveling around, been, generally being a drunk over there and meeting <laughs> friends and stuff in bars and yes. stuff. And, you know, I haven't seen those people. Well, I mean, I never thought when I left there the last time it would be so long. I was going there. Minimum twice a year for ten years, sometimes three times, Jeez. sometimes four. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I miss it. I do. Like you know, when like I said when I left, said goodbye to my mates, and I thought, shit, you know, I'll just see these guys again in yeah. four, or five months, maybe, and it's been literally years. So yeah. hanging to get back over there, hanging to do more, more stuff over there. Mm-hmm. Freedoms were were really kind to me. They they were really nice. You know, mm-hmm. I think the first match I did for Freedoms was at Corrigan Hall in a death match, which is biggest gift you can give someone yeah. so, and and lucky enough I you know got my face into magazines and stuff from it over there which was cool mm-hmm. a little bit like more exposure mm-hmm. yeah, so hopefully I can get back over there and do more with them they're all they're all cool guys and they're easy to have good death matches yeah and I, I'm sure that like your look and and everything like that would be very popular you know like with Japan fans you know when you think about you know the the bearded wild man from the West, you're like your Bruiser Brodies and things like that, you know, like you're perfect for that kind of thing. You offer something that, you know, none of them can be like, and something different. Yeah, and they're really into brawling. And in, they're into brawling in a way where you don't just ignore all wrestling. So and that sort of suits me. Mm-hmm. Like I've always been like a striker guy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've always been someone that's like, look, you know, it is, even if it's deathmatch, it's still deathmatch wrestling, right? So you've got to have some, some holds and some sort of like, you know, make it, it's a fight, right? It's not just, it's still, it's still wrestling. That's what I'm getting at. You still wanted to look, have that, that feel to it as like a big sport wrestling fight, not just random stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Um, is, is there any, uh, 
favorite sort of spots in Japan uh, that you always frequent or or go to when you're there? You know, like, do you normally stay in a a certain area? Like for a long time, our sort of main place when we would holiday, we'd always go to. Uh, there's a we always call it the APA, but it's an APA, I guess is how you say it, in Shinjuku, yeah. like in this main area. Is there a certain hotel you always go to, or or a region that you're usually based out of when you're over there? So probably for the last. 10, 12 trips that, that I did there, I would have been staying in Asakusa mm-hmm. near um, uh, near the temple in Asakusa. And just the main reason for that is you can get a reasonable hotel there for pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of central to where most shows are. You can get to Corrigan Hall in like 10, 15 minutes. You can get the first ring in Shinkeba within like 25, 30 minutes like that. So everything's kind of close. And just I'm familiar with it now. And I, like I said, as a man who enjoys a drink, I know most of the bartenders and stuff around there through going there for, you know, for years. So yeah. they'll catch up with the same dudes, say hello to everyone and stuff. But um, luckily when I've been there, I've managed to score like gigs with indie promotions and, and get out to Hokkaido and Sapporo and stuff and see some of like the country areas of Japan. And that was just awesome. It was yeah. really cool. That's so cool. I, I love doing, whenever we go, we sort of like plan our own trips. And by we, I mean my wife. Uh, I do yeah. nothing. Um, but <laughs> because I, I, I'm not nearly as good at it, but we do that, you know, because because like the transport and stuff is so great there. We'll just take a train and we'll like leave Tokyo and we'll go super regional. You know, we've been all the way down, essentially kind of saying Tokyo, all the way down around the south, even out to the Yakushima Island and back around yep, and yep. back up. And the only we've been up to the top like once, but only like kind of a brief trip. So that's sort of the thing we've been been kind of just journeying around. This next trip that we're going in April will mainly just be Kyoto and Tokyo. Um, there's been yeah. a, whenever we go to Kyoto, there's never enough time to see everything because it, it, it's so spread out, you know? So we're kind of going to do it, that and then just... There's always something to do there. I've been going there for so long. I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how many times we've been there, but I know that like if I had no choice and I was just stuck in Tokyo for a month, I could find 30 days worth of cool stuff to do in Tokyo without any problem whatsoever. Yeah, and that doesn't even, like, include getting on a train and just, like, leaving Tokyo to quickly go check out a, like, nearby town or city or or even on a fucking bullet train across the country in two hours or whatever. The issue's not going to be that you run out of cool stuff to do, that's for sure. No, no, absolutely. There's no chance that's going to happen. Um, so you're obviously really excited to go back. Do you know if you've got any opportunities for that to come back around soon now that they're, they're lifting all the, you know, restrictions and things like that? I think as it stands now, I wouldn't have any trouble. I've just got to get my my shit together to be, to be blunt. Like after COVID, I sort of just put it because you couldn't really do anything. And then when they opened up, it was like a half opening up for a bit. So it's really only been, you know, two, three months, I guess that it's been like, it's easy to go there and it's easy to, you know, not, not have issues and stuff. So maybe in the next six months, I'd like to at least, at least have been back once, even just short term and try and do something with someone over there for sure. Yeah. And uh, obviously with um, Tabahashi coming out uh, next month, I've got a death match with him. It'd be cool to, to catch up with him. I haven't seen him for six years. We're not like super close friends, but I've seen him on and off at shows <laughs> since I was a kid. So it'd be cool to work with him and, and, and cool to say hello to him and stuff again. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I definitely want to get there within the next six months. Oh, that that would be awesome. Yeah, we I'd love to see that. If it could be 
within the next three months when I'm there, that would be great timing. Just head there in April and we'll, uh, we'll hang out and you can show Honestly, me some of the April was, April was one of the months I was looking at, but it would just depend on, you know, a bunch of other stuff lining up. But April wasn't out of the question, actually. I was sort of uh, leaning towards that at one point. Right. Well, we'll, because- we'll leave it on the 30th of March and we'll be there, I think, till about the... I don't know, 22nd, 23rd. So if that happens, you've yeah. got to shoot me a text and let me know because we'll be hanging <laughs> for out sure. for sure, yeah. my dude. Absolutely. Well, now, I want to get one... Wa- oh, dude. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> hey, one one last question out of you because uh, uh, mutual friend, Mad Mad Pondo, told me this story when I interviewed him and I need to get it from your point of view. Now, he told me about when he came over here as the Juggalo Championship Wrestling Champion and he uh, wrestled you in a Chinese restaurant and dropped the title to you uh, in secret. <laughs> I need to hear this because apparently the fucking the clouds still don't even know about it. So I need to, you to tell me about your reign as JCW champion. So I, his memory, my memory is better than his, I think. Yeah. He wrestled crackers at a Chinese restaurant. He didn't wrestle me. That was the Friday night. He wrestled crackers at a Chinese restaurant, which, by the way, used to sell out. They used to have like... 300 people led tuition to this Chinese restaurant who'd be eating noodles and watching people beat the crap out of each other. <laughs> so good. Then then the next night, he was JCW champion. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed, I didn't even think anything of it. I'm going to the show to wrestle him. And I thought, well, he's the champion, so it is what it is. Yeah. End of the show, oh, now we'll do it this way. And I'm like, oh, okay, so what? I'm going to be the JCW champion? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, I guess so. And I'm like, is that okay? And he's like, I don't know. I'm here for a while. Let's make sure I've got it back when we head back over. Okay, fair enough. This happens. I remember speaking to him. He's like, I don't think... I'm like, were they okay with it? He's like, I don't think they know about it. And I'm pretty certain to this day that there's no way that those two JCW clans have any idea. Some indie guy in Australia had their belt for two weeks back in like 2007 or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I just remember that was, was bizarre. But it was actually really cool because... You know, people are wrestling aren't dumb. They would have seen that title match and nobody expected me to win that match. And when he put me over, I remember it like there was just like, hey, wait a second. Does that mean he's the JCW champion? Just like shocked. And I probably, yeah. I probably had a look at my face like, I don't know how the fuck this happened. This is what's happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was cool. And I was the JCW champion unofficially, I guess, for two weeks. They probably, I don't know if they know about it to this day. I he told me they don't know about it. He's like, I never <laughs> asked them, and I've never told him since in case it pissed him off. So he's like, he, to this day, they don't know that you were the champion for two weeks. <laughs> it makes sense. But he, he was a cool dude, man. He was super cool. I, the, actually, the match I had with him at the, in that match, I, that was a cool fight. I've got that around on DVD somewhere. He was, I mean, he was a lot, you know, I've, he was, really good at, at working with what he could do. Yeah. He would find the things that he was awesome at mm-hmm. and he'd do those things perfectly. Some of those bumps he's looking at match look so unpleasant. Yeah. I just remember giving him like a suplex from the ring over the top rope onto a ladder. He just hits the ladder, bounces off, lands on the floor like a sack of shit. I just remember going, oh, jeez, man. But he was he was great at that stuff. He'd put it in good spots. He'd, he'd make good use of it. Not you know he, he was never good at like doing moonsaults or anything like that, mm-hmm. but he would use what he had in cool ways. I remember when I wrestled him at Richard McCarrigan Hall, he did like the Undertaker walk the rope thing, yeah. except he wouldn't walk the rope with you. He'd just grab the ref and do it with a ref and then jump off and hit the other guy. Stuff like that. It was like interesting stuff and funny stuff. He was cool at it. He was so <laughs> charismatic. I um I went back and watched yeah. the original King of the Death match. Um, 
because I was going to do an episode uh, just kind of talking about it with um, a friend, uh, Corey, from Deathmatch Worldwide. You might know him. I think your, your merch is on his store or, or maybe that. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, we were going to do, and we did record an episode of it, but my shit fucked up and it never saw the light of day. But when I was doing it, I I sent Pondo a message to be like, hey, man, just want to tell you how much I enjoyed this because, I mean, it's not like it's the best tournament of all time or anything, but him, from the second he appears, he's the star of the show. You know what I mean? He yeah, comes he's out and, character, yeah. yeah, he's got this personality and this bounciness to him and you're like, this guy is fucking it on this thing. And he was like, thanks so much. And he goes, are you free now? And I go, yeah. And he gave me a call and he told me the story, like not to be on the podcast, just as a friend to have a chat. And I had him on the video call and I'm sitting here in this room and I'm just talking to Madman Pondo as he tells me about the original King of the Death match just to give me the context of the show. Like that's the yeah, kind yeah, of person he is, you know? He's he's just such yeah. a, a rad dude. So much time for everybody. And yeah, it, it didn't surprise me at all like that that it went down the way it did, you know what I mean? Because it's yeah, just yeah. It's the shit he would do, right? He helped me heaps in Japan early on. Not just like he was... He was basically a booker when I when I went there. He was helping book um, all the guys in talent, but yeah. not just with that stuff. Just like, hey man, you've never been out of your home country before. Here's some cheap places to eat that don't suck. If you want to have a beer? Here's places where you can get stuff at a reasonable price, super safe. You're not going to have any issues with anyone. All that sort of stuff. He helped me with all of that, man. And and just you know, when he's bored shitless, when he was staying at the dojo and shit, I'd go hang out with him down there and just you know hang out, and watch old wrestling and stuff together. He was a cool guy. Man. Easy guy, easy guy to talk to, easy guy to get along with, mm-hmm. and and not a bad wrestler, man. Like he he knew what he was really good at, and he'd use it in good ways. He was easy to work, really easy to work. I think most guys could have good matches with him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Shout out Madman Pondo, what an absolute gentleman. Um, but definitely, I want to thank you so much for your time, dude. I've had so much fun uh, hearing these all. Uh, this like war stories and getting a peek into your life in Japan and your entire career. This has been so fun, dude. It's been absolutely killer. No problem. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It was cool. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I normally would ask everybody around this time, tell them where to find you on social media, but we know that's not really a thing for you. So (laughs) come find me at a show. That's the best thing I can say to anyone that wants to come find me at a show. Come watch wrestling shows. Come support us. Absolutely. There's a, there's some great shows coming up. And like you said, you're going to be wrestling Kobayashi for... Yeah, Battle Championship Wrestling on February 24th, Friday, mm-hmm. which should be awesome, man. I'm really, really, really pumped for it. It's something that, you know, it sort of come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. When it was suggested, I thought, oh, wow, it's not something I've seen coming. I don't think a lot of people would have seen it coming either. But um, I can honestly say I, I, I put it, it's going to be up there with one of the biggest matches I've had, for sure. Yeah. So... You know, something to really look forward to for me and something to keep me really motivated. I'm, I'm hanging to do it, man. Can't Absolutely. wait. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not super familiar with Battle Championship Wrestling. Are they going to be putting this uh, show up or this match up anywhere that I can catch it after the fact? I'm an old dinosaur, so I'd have to find <laughs> out. I'd hope, to, I'd hope to think that they'd put it up on their Facebook page at some point. I know they ended up with me and Cy and Ben Takeda's match on at some point, so yeah. hopefully they do, yeah. No worries. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot out some uh, inquiries to others in the know uh, that use the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really bad with all that stuff, man. It's, it's the worst. I try my best with wrestling. That's yeah. where I give up. After that, when it comes to technology or any any sort of side of it, I'm out. Not interested. Not interested anyway. <laughs> well, dude, I appreciate you using the technology that is the telephone today uh, to get on here <laughs> with me. I really appreciate it. And if you go to Japan in April, you shoot me a text, dude, because we're, we're drinking beer. Absolutely. Definitely.
no way. So everybody out there, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the man that is Mad Dog. If you catch him at a show, say hello. Make sure you buy his merch. And for everyone out there, remember, it's all about peace, love, and pro wrestling. Yo, thanks for spending your time listening to the Faces and Feels podcast. Faces and Feels is a DIY project recorded and edited in-house by me, Rafe Houston. You can show your support by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Faces Fieldscast, or just head straight to our link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot double slash Faces Fieldscast to find all the info you'll ever need about the show. You can stream the episodes, be directed to your favorite podcast providers, find links to all our social media platforms and sponsors, and you can even buy me a coffee. If you have any questions, topic suggestions, or interview requests, you can send us an email to facesandfeels at gmail.com, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and Spotify. A banger theme is Loose Lips Sink Ships by the Thunder Vipers. Check it out on Spotify, and now hang around for a quick word from some friends of the show. Roadmap of pain. Deathmatchworldwide.com, the official online merchandise store that is only for Deathmatch Wrestling. Featuring official t shirts from No Peace Underground, John Wayne Murdoch, Akira, Madman Pondo, Zona 23, Neil Diamond Cutter, G Raver, Schlack, Necro Butcher, and many more. If you are a Deathmatch wrestler, promotion, manager, or platform, and are interested in joining the web store, send us an email to deathmatchworldwide at yahoo.com. Deathmatchworldwide.com for the violent view.